All right, guys, welcome back to Revive School. Here we are continuing our study in the wisdom books. This is the last one. I mean, it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of bittersweet, to be honest, because it's, it's a different way of looking at Scripture. It's a different way of communicating Scripture. But here you have these poetic books, these wisdom books. We've gone through Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And now here we have the son of David still writing one of his 1,005 songs to his first wife. He's got 700 wives. Didn't say he did it well. <laughs> But the first one he probably did, and this is a love song. It's not a continuation of many different ones. But the Song of Songs, also known as the Song of Solomon, uh, is an incredible picture of a process of seeing somebody falling in love with them, dating, uh, having a wedding, having consummation, having sexual relations, and then walking that out in your marriage. And then what does that look like? With having sex in, in regards to your marriage. And so, look, some of these these details... Some of these graphics that you read about, like it's very straightforward. And so today specifically, if you have some younger folks in the room and you're kind of like, ah, should I have them listen and learn? You know, there's always a time to learn about this stuff. It's your decision if you want to do it today. (laughs) And so I'm serious because, you know, a lot of this stuff makes us blush. And that's why the church shies away from these type of topics. You know, sometimes we don't teach on giving because we're afraid that it might offend somebody, but it's biblical. Sometimes we're afraid to teach on, on sex, but God designed sex. Why? So that we could have kids, so that the, the human humanity could continue. Like, it's all part of the incredible process that God designed. And I love this book. I'm actually surprised that I did. Uh, you know, I read this before when I was at Taylor University for the first time, and I was like reading things, and I was like, whoa. Like some of this stuff is like X rated. There's no way around it. It's super forward, super graphic. And yet God says, when you do it within the confines of how I have designed, it works. If you take these contexts and this conversations about what we're to talk about and body parts and sexual relations outside of the scriptures, man, it all falls apart. You have diseases, you have kids out of wedlock, you have abortion, you have issues in the family, there's no husband, there's no wife. You have all of these kind of issues, but God says, no, if you keep it within the way I've designed, this works. And so yesterday we had a conversation. Remember, we're talking about two characters that are in this text, Solomon and the Shulamite woman. Now within this conversation, remember, you have a couple people that are playing a part in this. You have the daughters of Jerusalem, and they're kind of like the, the workers of Solomon that knows the situation. Okay, Then you have possibly, possibly God's blessing in here, maybe in there. And then you also have what we would consider the brothers. Kevin, do you remember the brothers of who? The Shulamite woman. Yeah, the Shulamite woman. So these are the characters. Why I want to do this, because this book is super short. And as you're reading through this, I am convinced the reason people to understand the scriptures is because you don't even know who's talking sometimes. Oh, is this the prophet? Is this God? Oh, is this the Shulamite woman or is this Solomon? Just slow down. And I said this yesterday. I'm going to keep saying this throughout these teachings. Please take a highlighter and highlight woman, highlight man, highlight the other. It will help you. I literally did pink and blue just so I could just as I'm reading, understand 
who's talking and when. Now, yesterday, again, what we had, what we talked about yesterday was what we would call the courtship. Okay, the courtship is verses uh, chapter 1, 2 through uh, chapters 3 and verse 5. And we've call it also the anticipation period. Okay, like, ah, oh, man, this, this, this could be the one. There's this anticipation, I might be leaving my parents and having my own family. <laughs> like, this is the process that we're going through. Now, today, in order to have your own family, well, guess what needs to happen? You need to get married. There needs to be what we would call a wedding. Because when a wedding takes place, so does consummation. In other words, so does sexual relations, okay? And so here you have 3, 6 through 5, 1 that, that, that we're going to attempt to talk about today, specifically in chapter 4. And look, we're not going to get there today, but we're going to get there tomorrow. And I, I just think this is really helpful because then once you understand the dating, once you understand the wedding, you got to live this thing out in your marriage. <laughs> like sex is not just one night on the first day you get married. Like God designed this for a lifetime. He designed this for pleasure. I'll walk into that tomorrow a little bit more what that looks like. But then that gets into 5, 2 through 8, 14. But today we are going to focus on the wedding, consummation. What does that look like? And then how do we get to that point from dating to here? Now, remember, you got a guy that's just absolutely like blown away at the beauty of the Shulamite woman. Okay, she lives near the Jezreel Valley in uh, Shunem. And she's surrounded by the Mount Carmel, as Rich said, also the uh, Transfigura- Transfiguration. Yeah, Mount Transfiguration. Mount of Tra- Transfiguration. Lots of environments. And so here's what he says in verse 1. Okay, he says, How beautiful you are, my darling. How very beautiful. Behind your veil, your eyes are doves. Here's this language. When in doubt, just say the same compliment. <laughs> he says, Your eyes are doves. Your hair is like. Oh, yes. Your hair is like a flock of goats streaming down Mount Gilead. You know, this is a shepherd, right? This is what Solomon, he's playing the role of a shepherd. He's understanding the atmosphere. And you guys, what is he thinking? He says, your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep coming up from washing, each one having a twin and not one missing. (laughs) There's no hillbilly in this girl. She's got all of her teeth. They look good. And oh, they remind me of freshly uh, shaven sheep. Oh, yeah. Looking good. Ancient people. This is kind of an interesting statistic that Wearsby says. Ancient people didn't understand dental hygiene back then. So healthy teeth would like have actually affected her breath as well. So if you got good teeth, you got good breath. So I just think there's a lot here. And I do love the fact that she has no teeth missing. I just think it's fun. And then he says in verse three, he says, your lips are like a scarlet cord and your mouth is lovely. Well, praise God. That's normal. Behind your veil, your brow is like a slice of pomegranate. Okay, so these are the images that he is using to describe the beauty. I just think there's something here. And he's probably releasing this publicly. He's not afraid to say what he's saying publicly. And then he says in verse four, This is where it's going to get weird. He says, your neck is like the Tower of David. Constructed in layers. So you know what that means? There's a lot of neck there. (laughs) And then he says, a thousand bucklers are hung on it. What does that mean? A hairy neck? 
You know, all of them shields of warriors. Here's what I do know is that he is speaking language like uh, Wearsby would have said it this way. Uh, She had a queenly neck, a posture with it that exuded power, control and stability. She was a tower of strength. I just would never go to my girlfriend, Laura, who then became my wife and said, oh, just love your uh, your neck. I was trying to think of a, of, a, of a building in Minneapolis, but I don't think you can win with this, right? You know, who wants to hear you have a tall neck? Kevin? No. <laughs> so, all right, let's keep going because he's, on a, he's, he's in a groove with animals and buildings. And what is he doing? He's truly describing everything that he loves about her. Your beauty is extremely attractive. And here's, here's what um, Kent Hughes in his commentary, it's kind of an interesting comment. He says, you know, the woman shows, okay, the man, what she looks like. And then here's a unique role that we can learn from. He tells her what he likes about her. Like, I know those, there's the five love languages, right? I'm not going to get them all, but one of them is words of affirmation. I know that Laura loves words of affirmation. I'm not very good at it sometimes. Like I think it in my head, you know, and I have actions that I want to do in my head, but there's some things I don't really ever say. And so I need to get better. And that's what you can learn from Solomon. Guys, if you're dating, if you're not married, or if you are married, I can just say this either way, compliment your wives. Tell them why you think they are absolutely stunning. Tell them. Tell them why you first fell in love with them. And so Solomon, he continues and he gets really graphic. He gets really detailed here. But in verse six or verse five, he says, your breasts are like two fawns. Now, I don't think I've ever described my wife's body parts in comparison to an animal. I don't think that ever go over well, but Solomon can get away with it. He says, by the way, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that feed among the lilies. Now, here's where it gets interesting. He even names uh, these, he really does. He names these breasts. I don't know how else to say this. Before the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will make my way to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. He describes these in like, these, these are, these breasts are precious to him. And it's a mountain of myrrh and a hill of frankincense. Again, I've never used this language before in my life, but Solomon does because it speaks her language. In fact, just to even go over here, Mindy has a, an incredible painting about just even some of the spices. And so maybe these are some of the spices, the myrrh and the frankincense, all of these things that, that bring their love together. And he just tells her. Solomon just flat out tells the Shulamite woman, this is why I'm attracted to you. And by the way, in verse seven, you are absolutely beautiful, my darling. With Look at this, with no imperfection in you. Now we know biblically that there's nobody that's perfect except Jesus himself. But I do love this image of the bridegroom and the bride. And Kevin, we talked about this, right? We've talked about how, the, uh, let me just go to one of those verses if I can find it here. One of those verses is that, look, he's coming back. Is this true? He's coming back for a pure and spotless bride. And to me, this is almost uh, Song of Solomon, verse uh, four, verse seven. It has this image. I never would have thought this until I studied this, that verse seven is really a prophetic picture of what he's longing for the body of Christ. 
And so if you can go back, Kevin, to 2 Corinthians 11, 2, uh, 11, 2, I like this picture because he says, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy because I've promised you in marriage to one husband, look at this, to present a pure virgin to Christ. Like there is this picture of who we are in Christ where we're spotless in his eyes and that's what he's coming for. And that's how he sees us. And Solomon sees this uh, imperfection, perfection. He sees this in the Shulamite woman. Tom Constable says, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I think it's a really, really sweet picture of what he's after. (laughs) You know, um, up until this point, here we are in Song of Songs 4, verse 7. But wedding is really not ever mentioned before uh, 3, verse 11. Okay, even just it's mentioning it. But the bride, you guys, doesn't appear until four, verse eight, until the next verse. Okay, so here's that image of now all of a sudden you're going to transition into this. He starts talking to her, says, okay, now let's do this. Let's go get married. Come with me. Okay, so you don't have this image. So we're going to transition in anticipation and courtship to actually, you guys, here's what you have, consummation. And so one more thing, prior to chapter four, The beloved has a holy preoccupation. Solomon has a holy preoccupation. This is really important with sexual restraint. Okay, he's talking about having sex with this girl. He's and she's talking about it, but they haven't had it. They have not had marital relations. They have not done man and woman things that God designed. And so I think that's really important to understand. There has been relations like a restraint and now it's starting to let go. So he says in four, verse eight, he says, come with me, please. (laughs) From Lebanon. My bride with me from Lebanon. Descend from the peak of Amana, from the summit of uh, Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of the lions, from the mountains of the leopards. Here's what he's saying. I need you to leave it all behind. That's what he's saying. I need you to leave everything. I mean, this incredibly describes the distance of the couple. Not only have they been keeping sexually, But now he's saying, I need you to come and and be a part of me. I need you to leave everything. In fact, we have a picture of Mount Hermon. Why? I just think this is kind of interesting. He's saying, descend from the peak of Amana, from the summit of Sinir and Hermon. I need you to, I need you to leave this. I need you to leave the atmospheres that you're comfortable with and join me. I love you. He's very forward about his, his feelings. Because he says in verse nine, you have, excuse me, captured my heart. My sister, my bride, you've captured my heart with one glance of your eyes. And I love that because I can promise you if Laura and I are in a room and you guys can do this with your spouses, I can almost guarantee you have the look and you, you just, you know, you don't even have to smile. You don't even have to say anything. It's just that look of however your eyes portray how you're feeling. They got it. <clears throat> He says, oh, by the way, you've captured my heart with one, one glance. <laughs> and this is so true. This is what happened to me at Taylor. I'm sitting in the back. I saw her one time, Laura. And I go, that's it. With one jewel of your, of your necklace. It says in verse 10, how delightful your love, my sister, my bride. Your love is much better than wine and the fragrance of your perfume than any balsam. Like nothing even compares Like nothing compares. Your love blows it away. 
And remember, he's a pretty wealthy dude. He could add anything and he says, nothing compares to my love for you. In verse 11, it says, your lips drip, drip sweetness like the honeycomb. And I know here you have, look at Minnie has some uh, honey right here. Your lips drip, drip sweetness like the honeycomb, my bride. Honey and milk, I mean, that's an image of blessings from the Lord, are under your tongue. And the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Have you guys, you don't even have to answer this. I'll just tell you. Like, I, I'll remember when uh, I, I've been gone for a trip and I'll just sit down and I'm in the couch in our bedroom and I'm sitting there and, and uh, Laura had just washed all of our clothes or something and they're just in a pile. And I'll, I'll actually just take, this sounds super weird, I don't even care. And I'll just take one of her shirts and I'll just smell it. And it just, I automatically can smell Laura. Like there's something there that just, it instant, like instantly just puts love in me. <laughs> I don't also know how to describe it. It's just like, yes. Like there's so many features of my wife that I, I love. And one of them is, is her smell. It says in verse 12, now this is where it gets interesting. My sister, my bride, you are a locked garden, a locked garden and a sealed spring. You know what he's saying? By the way, we haven't had sex yet is what he's saying. By the way, we haven't interacted how God designed. You're a locked garden. There's nothing that I've done. I, I can't get into you. You're locked. In a simple term, it just means she stayed sexually pure and she's a virgin. The bride has stayed pure. And then he says in verse 13, he still describes her, you guys. Your branches are a paradise of pomegranates with choicest fruits. Henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloe, with all of the best spices. Like he said, this is what I love. He describes everything that he is like passionate about her. And he says, I haven't been able to touch you yet. Like, I love the description. I've never heard a virgin described as a locked garden. <laughs> and he says, you're a sealed spring. In other words, though, you break that seal and boom, here we go. And that's what he says in verse 15. Here comes the satisfying thirst. He says, you're, you're a garden spring, a well of flowing water streaming from Lebanon. And he begins to truly describe like what it's like, can I just say it so clear, uh, like this is what it's going to be like to have sex with you. Awaken north wind, come south wind, blow on my garden and spread the fragrance. And now here you have the Shulamite woman. Okay, now let me think about this. This is how she's describing to him. He says, you're a locked garden, okay? And then he says, but you're a garden spring, a well of flowing water. And so he says, you were closed at one point. And now she says in verse 16, but now I'm open. You know, when I was a kid, I think it was probably when I was 16, my parents took me to a, uh, an old 50s diner. And my mom and dad, it was, they were, it was super, I love my parents, but it was super awkward. They had the talk with me, <laughs> you know, the sex talk. And they gave me a purity ring. And I think I remember even saying, Dad, I'm, I know everything. We're good. Just I'm fine. I didn't. I just didn't want to hear my dad tell me everything, you know. So my dad gave me a purity ring. And, it, and uh, I, the point was, is that I would stay pure. And I'm just going to say it really graphic here. And I would never tap into a female's garden. Like I wouldn't ever go there because that's not how God designed it. 
Because you see, what happens is, is when you go to the consummation phase, regardless if you've been married or not, you become one flesh. And when you become one flesh, you begin to actually go against everything that God designed. And so she says, yes, I've waited for you. He says, I've waited for you. And the whole true love waits was worth it. When I got a purity ring, I actually went to Washington, D.C. And I went to a true love waits rally. And just in my mind, it was ingrained, Kyle, you need to wait for that one. You need to wait for that one because that's how God designed. She describes, the Shulamite woman describes herself, I am your garden. Let my love come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. Now, I know uh, I'm just going to give you a couple of statistics here. 74% of women, okay, this comes from uh, the Guttmacher Institute, okay, 74% of women engage in sex before marriage. I don't know why they say women compared to men, but 74%. That's crazy, you guys. In the Kinsey Institute, K-I-N-S-E-Y, Kinsey Institute, the average male loses his virginity, okay, at the average age of 16.9 in America. The average female loses and gives up her garden at the average age of 17.4. Now, if you ask anybody these different statistics, I, I do think the point is this, whether it's 18 or 19, it doesn't even matter, you guys. We're not even talking about being married here. We're talking about people losing their virginity, giving up of themselves and making and becoming one with another person because they've given into the passion. Crazy enough, here's another one. The National Center for Health Stats, okay? Ages 20 to 59. So between 20 and 59, women have had at least four sexual partners. Men blow that one out of the water. From the ages of 20 to 59, men have have an average of seven sexual partners in that time period. That's a lot. It's really sad statistics. It really is. And you want to know why I believe part of the reason is? We don't teach a healthy model of how God designed sex. We don't teach a healthy model of how God actually wired each one of us. Not only, I'll get into this tomorrow, but for passion, but also for procreation. Like he's given, there's so much here. And yet when we fall into the enemy's traps, I want to even go to the Proverbs over here and we take the evil path rather than the narrow path because the narrow path is really hard. But he says at the end, it's so worth waiting for. But when you give into the other on the side over there, you guys, when you give into those things, what happens is honestly, physical reasons, sexual transmitted disease. If you don't wait, you could have an STD. You could get pregnant outside of wedlock. You could risk the abortion component. There's a survey done on the internet called the IMOM, and they did an evaluation of teenagers. You're going to actually risk physical abuse when you pursue sexual relations outside of marriage. I think you kind of get it. That's just the physical reasons, you guys. The emotional reasons are is that as soon as you, you know what happens, as soon as you connect with somebody sexually, you become emotionally connected with them. 
You're, you're, there's something there. Your heart is connected to them. And then the craziness is, is a lot of us don't have the maturity to handle the emotions after sex. And then in this process, you guys, uh, girls, it's, it's proven that girls are likely to have lower self-esteem after having sex. So can you imagine if you're having sex outside of marriage and then you have the sex, how you might feel about yourself? You might feel used and abused. And unfortunately, it's it's happening way too much today. Physical reasons, emotional reasons, and then just relational reasons of having if you have sex outside of marriage. Uh, there becomes this sexual uh, bond and it makes it really difficult to leave unhealthy relationships. So because you're connected at the body parts, it's hard to pull away. And so, uh, you know, there's an interesting, uh, I want to just give you a couple things of why we want to wait. Like, why do you want to wait for, uh, I think, do you guys, do we have a, no, I think we don't here. Why do you want to wait for, I, I just, I want to use this image of, of why do we want to wait for the garden? Why do we want to wait for the Shulamite garden that has been uh, held perfectly and designed perfectly for you? Like, why would you want to wait? Well, first of all, I think you want to wait because you deserve love. Think about this. Like, there's more than just this physicalness. There's this heart connection here. You deserve more than just a quick fix. This person online says, why else do you need to wait? You, You need to wait because it's not true. Not everybody else is doing it. So there's this image of like, I need to have sex because I need to fit in with everybody else. You don't. You just need to stay in here. There's a lot of other reasons here. It's not safe. There's always a time for everything. Please, if you're, if you're younger, if you're a child, like you need to experience adolescence. You don't need to be taking care of a baby. A garden is designed for you to enjoy. But you need to wait. Go through this period of courtship. Let this man or woman of God court you in anticipation of you becoming one. And I'll just say this. Uh, in Genesis 2.24, if you'll go there, Kevin. In Genesis 2.24, this is really what happens, you guys. A man leaves in anticipation. He leaves his mother and his father and he bonds with his wife. There's this bond, you guys, that can never, yes, and it says they become one flesh. Laura's body becomes my body. My body becomes her body when we have sexual relations. That's really what it comes down to. And then outside of that, guess what? We're still one. You can't separate what's become one. What God designed, we aren't to separate. (laughs) There's a body, a soul, and a spirit that's all connected in all of this. In fact, Jesus talks about this. Kevin, if you go to Matthew 19, verse 5. Matthew 19, verse 5, it says, And he also said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, now think about this. So yeah, We can go to verse 6. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. I love this part here. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. Because there's so many reasons of how you're connected. And I just want to say in Ephesians 5, 31, if you'll go there, Ephesians 5, 31. (laughs) 
It says this, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Paul talks about this. Jesus talks about this. Moses talks about this. And why? Why does all of this, why is this picture of one and one uh, or, you know, two becoming one? Why? Why is this so important? Because in Ephesians 5, 32, it, it gives a bigger picture. The dating leads to the wedding, the consummation, because this mystery is profound. But I am talking about Christ and the church. This picture. And I don't know if you've ever put it together. But when she says to him, uh, I'm your garden. It's almost like God wants us to go back to the original garden of how he designed it. And he says to Christ and church, I want you to come together in the garden the way I designed it. You know, there's a lot here. Um, Some of it's a little bit more detailed and some of it isn't. But the point is this. Please don't blow off the Song of Songs. It could change your marriage. All right, guys, we'll wrap this book up tomorrow. And I'm pretty excited about where we're heading tomorrow. Have a great day.